The Seven City Podcast is dedicated to interviewing artists in the Chicagoland area, their supporters, and developers. Join us on our journey as we look at all aspects of the seven arts. Hey, Em, how are you? I am fabulous. It's a beautiful, sunny Monday here in Chicago. It's 50 degrees. It feels like springtime. I am feeling hopeful and happy today. How are you feeling? Same. I got to walk outside in the sunshine a little bit earlier, and I feel like a different person. <laughs> I, I feel like the city is a totally different character in the sun than it is when it's you know gray and cloudy and windy and wintry here. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I am so excited about our guest today, Christopher Kidder-Mostrom. We have worked with him on several play readings this year. Um, and, well, I guess I will talk about how we met once he's in the room. Uh, but, Emma, is there anything you wanted to add before we invite him in? Yes, I'm very excited to talk to Christopher. Um I, we've been reading some of his plays and some of his works this year, and I, he's just got the most unbelievable, fun, like mischievous mind. I'm really excited to just kind of dig deeper and figure out a little bit more about what makes him tick. Yes. All right, shall we? Without further ado, actor, director, playwright, and overall genius, Christopher Kidder Mostrom. Yay! Welcome. Well, hello there. <laughs> <laughs> That's a heck of an introduction. Um, we try. <laughs> How are you, Chris? Well, I'm doing pretty good. Um, it's it's a lovely day here in Seattle where I'm at at the moment. Um, the sun is out, which was not true uh, yesterday, so it, we're on an upswing. Oh, that's lovely. Oh, I mean, yeah. oof. there's something about a bunch of gray days in a row that just... It brings your whole mood down. I can't, ugh, I can't handle it. Well, especially you know, after this winter, I felt like it was a really hard winter. It really was. I mean, I think that you know, with COVID and everyone being really ready to just be outside, dealing with the weather being warm and then cold again for a long time. I'm not sure what was going on in Seattle, Chris, but here it was warm and then all of a sudden cold again and everyone was just like uh please can we just have something nice <laughs> our hearts broke <laughs> yeah that feels like most of the time in seattle um <laughs> i live my life vicariously by watching all of my friends in chicago and their their uh feeds about whether it's you know snowing which we don't have here or sunny, which we don't have here. <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's much more entertaining to look back at the Midwest and follow what everyone's doing there. Um, <laughs> the the multiple cloudy days in a row is so normal here that basically I just take it as the days that I have to shut myself away and uh, put my nose to the grindstone on getting stuff done. Sure. Because oh, wow. at least if I keep busy, then I don't notice that it's oppressively dank outside. Yeah. Oh, that's a great word for it. Dank. <laughs> well, Chris, speaking of Chicago, um, Chicago is where we originally met um, way back. And I was trying to remember what year we did Figaro. I, just, I think it was 2016. 
I think that's about right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It might have been 2015, but yeah. 15. Okay. Well, um, the wonderful soprano and actor um, Sally Olson introduced us during chorus production of Figaro. And um, you graciously wrote us a quick review before opening night to try to help, you know, get people into our seats. And I think it was successful. So I appreciate that. Uh, but I just remember having that wonderful conversation with you uh, after I think our dress rehearsal at the bar. And, oh, well, I don't know. I was wondering if you wanted to share anything about that night. Well, uh, let's talk about that production first. It, it blew me away that y'all were able to put together a uh, really solid show inside of a uh, small cafe. I'm really a fan of found space shows to Same. begin with. Um, you know, there's there's something awesome about doing something theatrical, whether it's opera or or, or straight theater, um, in a place where it's not expected. I, yeah. You know, you can put anything on on a flat stage in front of a large audience, which, you know, is a joyful thing in and of itself, but to take it out and bring it to the public in a space that is a public space, uh, is really exciting to me. And yeah, I thought you totally guys did a heck of a job. Thank you. <laughs> um, I just remember you being so, um, there's something about having an audience member who is a director, cause you have the eyes that, need to look at something and, and notice all the details of the production. And that was what was really cool that struck me about you. You just n noticed all the little things that we did that made the production so special. And I, I just, yeah, not to, you know, wax poetic about a show that happened, you know, five years ago or whatever. But <laughs> um, it was so cool to meet you and to have, to be able to dive into a conversation like that was Absolutely. so special. Yeah. And, and afterwards at the bar, uh, you, you mentioned that is where we actually met Matt and yeah. the conversation flowed so freely and talking about artistic ideas and being able to laugh and enjoy the conversation, but also get into the meat of what our art is. I was like, this, this is the conversation that I want to be having all the time. Same. Oh my gosh. Same, same, same. Um, well, that's so interesting because one of my questions for you today is um, uh, in reading many, many articles about you. <laughs> There's so many articles about you, which is so <laughs> cool. Um, I wanted to ask you what you look for in a story that makes you want to set it. You've done a lot of translations of plays and a lot of adaptations of stories to to plays and what inspires you about a story that makes you want to dive into it? That's a great question. Um, the first thing that I look for is something that I think needs to be put on stage, needs to be brought alive. Okay. Because when you're adapting something uh, from a written story, um, uh, especially I often adapt uh, pieces of literature that are, short stories or children's stories. Um, what, how would something benefit by being live and in front of you? 
Um, and mm -hmm. is that worth doing? Um, and the second thing, I want something to make me laugh and have fun. Um, <laughs> even if it's a serious topic, I want to laugh and have fun. In theater, we are putting on plays. Play is in the title. I don't want to pay to see a torment in three acts. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to see everyone playing. Um, yeah. And so I try to come up with uh, pieces to work on that will give that sense of play some vitality on stage. Mm. And do you have a favorite story that you've adapted? Um, yeah. Uh, the first one I go back to many, many times, uh, is actually, uh, more a translation than an adaptation, but it's, uh, Machiavelli's The Mandrake. Oh, interesting. Which is a bit of a uh, sex farce, but it also hints at many of Machiavelli's political um, thoughts demonstrated through the characters in the play. So uh, the other half of my major in undergrad, other than theater, was political science. And so I always oh. have an interest in that. Um, and honestly, it was my first translation, so I kind of have a soft spot in my heart for it. I also go back and tinker with it every single time that it's done. So uh, it, it's like a good friend that I just can't leave alone. You were talking about how, um, you know, you you have a favorite translation that you've done before. I'm wondering, have you ever had a piece of theater that you've seen that really moved you or stuck with you? Is there something that like really inspired you? You know, I really, really enjoy uh, productions of shows that you're not expecting to like. Um, Ooh. and okay. So I, for many years, I was a reviewer there in Chicago yeah. and I would see three to four shows a week. Yeah. And many shows that stick with me, um, are from the storefront theaters. Mm. I mean, yes. Hamilton sticks with me because it's a big production and it's amazing. And, but at the same time, it's things like um, Monstrous Regiment. It's an adaptation. It's an adaptation of a uh, Discworld novel by... Uh, really? Terry Pratchett. Thank you, by Terry Pratchett. Wow. Mind blanks. Great. Um, so I... Uh, <laughs> it's about a, a military group that's entirely made up of women. That's what in histor historical terms, a monstrous regiment is. But Pratchett turned it on its head and it's uh, not only all female regiment that is pretending to be male, um, but it's also all made up of monsters. Oh. Um, taking the play on the word monstrous. So one of them is a vampire, one is a werewolf, one is a um, troll. And it was just an amazing turning everything topsy-turvy. There was only one actual guy in the cast, um, Chris Walsh, uh, who was a well-known actor there in town. Um, and all of the other women in the cast played uh, essentially in drag for most of the time until the reveal. But the one thing they weren't hiding was their monstrous nature. That's um, amazing. And I thought it was really ingeniously done. Wow. 
I would love to see that. Well, and maybe we have something for a couple of seasons from now. <laughs> I was going to say, I love how much fun that is. You just seem like you really love words and wordplay. And I really appreciate that. That's a quick wit there. And I really like that idea. I immediately had a visual of that. What great costumes those must have been. <laughs> I, um, I am so, speaking of, of Chris's draw to words, I read that you... Um, you were really drawn to physical theater and psychology to to sort of uh, develop your translations. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how you made that uh, discovery. Sure. Um, okay, so I went to a, a theater program that was entirely steeped in the method for my training initially. And that uh, had me all up in my head. So I was constantly looking for other places and other ways to learn other methods that were not so cerebral. Um, And I got uh, lined up with a vocal instructor when I lived in the Twin Cities. um, And she just happened to be uh, playing... Carmen at uh, Teatro de la Jeune Lune. Um, and because she was my voice instructor, um, she arranged for me to become part of the chorus for that production. Oh, cool. Um, and Teatro de la Jeune Lune uh, was based on Ecole Jacques Lecoq uh, acting methods, which is a, it's a, a school in uh, France that teaches physical uh, acting, using your body uh, as your primary vessel of communication. Words aren't as important. Um, And and it shook up my entire understanding of of what theater could be, working with these brilliant artists who were treating theater completely differently than what I had been taught at that point. I love those moments. so there's that side of things. Um, then while I was there, um, in between doing Carmen and the next show that I did with them called The Ballroom, um, I went and started grad school through the University of New Orleans's uh, low residency playwriting uh, MFA program, which had me uh, doing most of the stuff at home. I had a small child and didn't want to be gone a lot, but I did have to be gone for a couple months each summer. And I spent that time in Spain and that, so, so that got me, um, into the translating thing because I was translating, um, Spanish works into English. How did you make the connection to, to travel to Madrid? Um, there, (laughs) The, that is where the writing workshops were held by UNO oh, no. in summers. It was either in, <laughs> it was either in Madrid uh, for most of the writers, or if you were a poet, you got to go to the Brunenberg Castle in Brunenberg, Italy. Um, oh wow! And, and so I spent my summers in Madrid. Um, Clearly, which, I made the wrong choice for school. Well, I was just saying, how do I become a poet for a summer? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I wish I had actually done that. I wish I had taken advantage of that and just gone and studied poetry for a summer. And But at the same time, the time in Madrid was great. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it 
really steeped me into uh, translation theory, which I had not touched up until that point. My uh, theater company at that point had been entirely uh, a vanity project where, you know, Chris had a couple thousand dollars to throw away. Let's go put on a show. <laughs> and so we did comedies and such. But coming back from my first year in grad school, I went, well, I think we're going to change the company's mission to doing nothing but translations. Wow, and, that's so cool. Uh, one of the things that I encountered over there in the playwriting workshop specifically, um, uh, the professor's name was Stephen Bogart. Um, he's in New Hampshire, I believe, the, mostly the Boston area, but I think he teaches at a school in New Hampshire normally. Um he had this uh, pop psychology slash counseling theory thing called a Johari window that he put on the board. Um, and the, the, to sum it up, because I'm not a psychologist, um, I'll, I'll sum it up real quickly, is that basically you can't know your true self. You can know your own perception of yourself. You can know what you perceive of someone else perceiving of yourself. Um, but you can't know your true self because you can't perceive it directly without it being through a filter. Oh, wow. So I took that bit from my first year in grad school and, uh, took that and combined it with the physical acting methods that I learned at, uh, Jun Lun and squished them together into a workshopping method that I call reclaiming the essence. And basically when I write a play that is a translation, um, I initially translate the play into English directly myself, but it ends up that it's very stilted and very, um, well, all of the characters talk like me, um, <laughs> which, you know, can be amusing, but probably not for very long. Um, so I, I get a group of actors together and we workshop the play and basically we take it through a thing where we build archetypes for each of the characters. We bring them down to something simple, one motion and one sound, and that is your character. So that is oh, the wow. essence of what your character is. And then from there, we um, add things like interaction between these two characters and then bring in a third character and see how that morphs their uh, sound and their sh uh, shape. After that, then we apply those to each of the, the scenes, specifically French scenes. So basically the short, when someone enters, when someone exits that are in every play, they might not be labeled that way, but that's the way I workshop it. Oh, um, wow. And so the first thing that happens is two actors will do their scene uh, straight off the page, and then I'll have them put down the papers um, and essentially paraphrase the scene. And then I will have two other actors swap out, uh, and replace those first two actors. Um, let's say the two actors, original two actors are the young lo lovers, the young guy and the young girl. Huh. And in comes, uh, the actor is playing the grumpy mother-in-law and the idiot husband. <laughs> and they swap out and they do the scene, but they do the scene how their characters perceive the original two characters. Oh, oh no, that's um, and after the entire cast goes through and does that, 
Then the original two actors go back in and they choose, pick and choose the parts that they liked uh, from everything they've seen. They have to incorporate everyone's perspective into it so that you get this multi-layered interpretation uh, that is closer to the true essence of the characters. Wow. Now, that, wow. that entire process is really work intensive, uh, not only for the actors, but also for the stage manager who is taking down every single change in the script. <laughs> Frantic right. notes. Um, and for the director, uh, actually kind of less so for the director, because you're just sort of cheering on and coaching. But uh, <laughs> I also normally film it from a, a few different angles. And then once the workshop's done, and that's about a month long, then I go back for about a couple months and take all of those changes and figure out which ones work, which don't, which are funny, which weren't, and, and build the actual script out of all of that workshopped material. And then we go into rehearsals. Um, but it is that Johari window that guides the perceptions of the characters. And then it's the physical thing uh, th that is not only from Junlun, but also uh, Michael Chekhov um, acting method on building archetypes. And all of that is sort of smushed together into my uh, workshopping method for translated works. Yep. That's fascinating. Someday, if I go for a PhD, that'll all be part of my thesis, I imagine. But I, you know, uh, in the meantime, I'm happy to share it freely. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a really brilliant way of doing it. While we're talking about workshopping and your process um, and the way that you see things and the way you take them apart and put them back together, I wanted to ask you about Arrows and Apples, which is the piece that you're workshopping with us um, this upcoming May. And I wanted to ask you, it's about the story of Atalanta. What drew you to this story? Because, I mean, I've, I've seen a million retellings of it, but never anything this way. Yeah. Um. The, the first thing is that uh, I suppose it's important to know that I have a daughter. Oh. Um, she is 22 now. Um, but when I first wrote this script, um, it was 2004. So she was five years old. Um, I was writing the script to get into grad school. Because um, as you all know, um, I primarily write short works most of the time. Yeah. Um, and I hadn't yet at that point written a full length play. So um, I had to write one to finish my application to grad school. Uh, and I found a storybook that I had gotten for my daughter that was uh, princess stories, but they were not the traditional princess stories of helpless princesses that had to be saved. They were all strong female characters that just happened to be princesses. Um, and the story of Atalanta was in there. Uh, now, Atalanta is a huntress. She is uh, the only uh, woman to have been included amongst the Argonauts on the Argos with Jason. Uh, mm -hmm. She is uh, the person that killed the Caledonian boar, the giant, monstrous, wild boar that was terrorizing that part of the world. 
Um, she's an amazing character on her own, but she finds out that her fate is tied to whether or not she gets married. Well, yeah. um, as such, um, th there, there's a lot of our society that still, even to this day, places you must get married on a, on a pedestal, at least oh, yeah. in, in certain segments of the population. And uh, I wanted to challenge that a little, but at the same time, I didn't want to initially rewrite the play too much. So I, I, I threw um, the story a curve, as it were, by choosing to make Pan, the god of the wild, the narrator. Yeah. Um, because he brings a bit of chaos to things. He's not bringing any chaos to the action, just to the way it's told. Yeah. Um, and then the other intention was to make uh, Princess Atalanta a character that I'd like my daughter to be uh, proud that her father came up with. Let's put it that way. Um, oh, that's a really nice way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, as the, there's always generational change and yeah. in the way the world is seen. And I don't want uh, the work that I put out there to be seen as taking us backward. I want uh, the work I put out there to be seen as uh, looking forward to a better future and so on. And so I, I want uh, a very selfishly as a single father wanting my daughter to look back and go, yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, awesome. So yeah, I don't think that's selfish. I think that's right on point. I think that's yeah. really admirable, actually. <laughs> um, so with that in mind, uh, I wrote the play, but I wrote it very quickly, and it was really clunky. Uh, so at the end of my my final year uh, of grad school, I went back to it and revised it heavily, um, and that's pretty much the version that I sent to you both uh, a while ago now. Um, and at that time I was feeling, you know, this is very dense. I enjoy it. It's funny, but all the scenes work individually, but I really kind of feel like it needs to be a musical. What um, made you feel like that? Uh, partly, uh, I don't disagree. I'm just asking. <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, partly because you can tell so much in a song with fewer words and, and by adding music that tells the story yeah, uh, mm. that you can make a play simpler in between and have much of the content uh, become more important and heightened through the stylization of making it music. Ooh, um, that was a really good answer. <laughs> and, and, and so I, I, I've been holding it in reserve. I've tried a couple of times to go, okay, I'm going to take this chunk and I'm going to write it as lyrics instead. And the majority of the times that I've done that with, without a workshop and just in on my own at my desk, um, I go, 
I am not capturing this or I feel like I'm uh, treating the wrong part to be a song. And so yeah. one of the things I'm looking forward to most is uh, finding out what folks with far more uh, expertise in the musical field uh, feel what parts should be sung, which, which parts aren't part of the story we need to tell, what is the most essential part of a story that needs to survive. Um, and where are those deep moments that can be brought out through the beautiful simplicity of song? I am so looking forward to those things as well. <laughs> oh my gosh. I could I'm just listen to you talk for hours. <laughs> oh no, I'm over here going, what is the essence of a character? Now I want to go back and revisit all everything I'm looking at now, you know? Yeah. That's such a different way of looking at things. Oh, Christopher, I swear, I could just pick your brain all day. Um, so getting... Getting back to Atalanta, which or Arrows and Apples, which will be uh, doing a reading of the play as it stands right now on May 22nd at 3 p.m. on our YouTube channel. Um, what are you looking for in this reading? What specifically do you hope to get out of it? Is there... Is, do you have that idea of, of the lyrics in mind? Is it the, the conversation with the actors, like you said, to find out what you find is the essential part of the story? Is there something? Yeah. You know, yeah. When listening to a reading, one of the things that I have in my mind initially when I'm writing is how I think the characters sound, but mm -hmm. it never goes quite that way. And that's not a bad thing because I think my, plays always grow most when they are in other people's hands. Um, I can take the, a play to the level that I imagined it at and, and no further. Whereas when it's being read by a group and being directed by not me, um, one of my plays will take on different characters, different rhythms will come out in the speech. And I, I'm wanting to hear it come alive in a way that I can go, Oh, you hear the the rhythm that Plexippus puts on that thing? Yeah, let's get that. And let's, that uh, sounds like that should be a lyric, you know. Um, and trying to find what is most vibrant when an actor uh, inhabits the role, as opposed to whatever I was imagining at the time. Um, yeah. So that's the most exciting thing about the reading to me, is hearing it interpreted through multiple people's uh, interpretations and, and how it can uh, inform where we go from here. I am looking forward to the discussion afterwards and finding out what works, what doesn't, what people say, oh, you know, that monologue, it really should be a song, um, mm -hmm. you know. But at the same time, I think the thing that's going to most inform where we go from here is what ends up being the favorite moments that we, when we hear it aloud. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, you know, when I read it on a page, uh, you know, 13 years since the last time I worked on it or something like that. Um, that's... and I go, oh yeah, I remember writing this. Yep. That's fine. You know, and that's, that's not the reaction that I want to have on, on 
the piece, but that's the reaction I have when it's just there on paper. It's when it comes alive through actors and through someone else's direction that I really get excited about a work. It's so interesting that you say that because when I'm directing something, I will often read it out loud instead of just read it on the page to sort of get a feeling for what the text sounds like, but also what it feels like. Uh, That's so interesting to me. I'm so excited to work on this project with you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask, because, you know, uh, there there are other works that you've developed into somewhat. I I don't know how how to say this the right way, but um, the... in thinking about developing some of the text into music, I'm of course immediately thinking of Klingon Christmas Carol. Yes. <laughs> and so I was just wondering, you know, what that process was like uh, creating the, the music for that or who, how did that work for you? Well, the nice thing with that play is that the music actually all already existed. Oh, I didn't um, know that. Yeah. Uh, the the Klingon Christmas Carol started as a joke um, that one of our board members made when we were trying to figure out what would be our fundraiser for 2007. Mm. Um, and he, we had kicked around doing a uh, Dickens Christmas Carol, but one of the ideas was doing it in Pig Latin. Um, <laughs> one was to use uh, at that time the major translation engine online was Babelfish. And okay. so we had thought about doing a Babelfish translation of it, which would just be slaughtering it. Um, oh, <laughs> and we we got rid of those ideas uh, when Clarence said, how about Klingon? And we wrote it down. He thought he was joking. Um, and so, But seven months later, we were doing the first ever show done in the Klingon language. Wow. Um, and what we discovered as we were finding the the Klingon speakers that are out there, um, Mm -hmm. which is a sizable group, um, that some folks had done cover tunes of uh, oldies rock and roll in Klingon. Um, Some people had translated uh, some other songs. Um, And so we started with those. Initially, we started with things that were already out there. Um, Between 2007 and 2014, which is the last time that we overhauled the script, in between there, I, I did get into translating songs into Klingon um, because the uh, improvised Star Trek group uh, approached me about doing something for one of their episodes, and I got a group of translators together, and we did uh, the song Kiss Me by Sixpence None the Richer. In Klingon? Uh, in Klingon for their episode. <laughs> And one of our singers, um, one of our performers, who has a ridiculously good voice, um, uh, Jen Uselis, who uh, we recommended to them, and she covered it uh, for them. And it's in its Klingon version, it's called Hitchop, which means uh, bite me. Um, and it's an order. Um, and and uh, she sang that, um, and it it has turned into a side career for her. She is known as the Klingon pop warrior. Oh, oh my gosh. And she, she translates all sorts of songs now. In fact, she has uh, one of her songs, uh, her translation of Let It Go is actually in the Disney archive. 
Oh, wow. Congratulations to her. Yeah, wow. thank you. Um, but uh, as time went on, um, we used to do promotional things. So we did uh, the Klingon Rickroll, um, which we made a video for to promote the 2013 production of the show. Um, we, we started translating our own, uh, what's it called? Um, Christmas carols that we started to incorporate the last couple of years of the show. Um, so we had good King Wenceslas and silent night, uh, that we did our own translations of, and we wow. did a modified translation. There was already a previously existing translation of deck the halls. Um, but it was not it was actually still very Christmassy, and so we had to do a cultural translation on it and then retranslate the words to fit uh, what we were doing. Um, so we had those songs incorporated by the end, but the, the show didn't initially have uh, any songs in it other than Koi Kalish Puklod, which is uh, from, uh, I believe it was done on Deep Space Nine. Um, and in a video game called Klingon. Um, oh and the other song we included was uh, Wild Thing uh, <laughs> by the Trogs. Um, yeah. And uh, that one was just nonsense, essentially, of two kids, you know, pretending like they were jamming along to a song. And so uh, they sang, sang the song Kutwit, which is uh fierce thing thing that is fierce um yeah so <laughs> uh music was always a part of it um we tended to stay away from translating uh songs until we were really comfortable doing so but we also always uh hired composers to put together complete scores for the show oh wow um and we had three separate scores um that we finally settled on one that was by Joe Griffin, um, who is uh, there in Chicago. Um, but previously, we'd also had one uh, by John Silipayan, uh, who is uh, part of Il Troubadour, is his normal group, but they also do the Klingon Music Project. Um, and music both of those project. scores were amazing and uh, specifically composed for a Klingon Christmas Carol. Incredible. I just love this. I love that. I love the idea of the score being there and everybody can come back and just very seriously get together and make high art in Klingon. I love this. Yeah, it's amazing. I have some uh, some questions I'd like to ask, but Emma, I wanted to ask you if you have any more questions before I... I, I had one more just because, you know, Christopher, you're so well-versed in translation and I, I just, I'm still fascinated about this idea of stripping something down to the essentials and really finding the core of it. When you go back and you revisit your work regularly, as you said, um, and not a lot of playwrights do that, I find. So when you go back and revisit and you're stripping down, did you discover anything about your own style that surprised you or that you found, you know, just was interesting or amused you? Well, I think the, the first thing I notice when I go back uh, to an older work is how much my own speech pattern has changed over time. Oh, no, that's um, interesting. And how quickly something can become anachronistic. Um, 
I often, again, I love lyrics. So um, my thesis play, which was from um, the Spanish play El Cid de las Niñas by Leandro Fernandez de Moratín, um, and the play's title in my version is The Young Lady's Consent. <laughs> uh, there is a young man who is wooing the title character. Mm-hmm. And uh, for whatever reason, whenever I found a line that he said uh, that was close to a lyric in pop music, I would swap it out with the lyric that was saying the same thing as what he was saying. Um, so he would come in with Peter Cetera's um, theme to um, Karate Kid uh, <laughs> with the statement, I will be, I am a man who will fight your fight for your honor. I'll be the hero you're dreaming of. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, the first two lines of that song. Um, he also quoted the Beatles a number of times and things like that. Um, so I, I enjoy dropping those things in but you know an 80s hit for him works well for uh the gen x crowd Mm. but as you know gen x is aging up baby boomers are going away and millennials and uh and uh gen zers whatever we're now calling them um, track come up into adulthood and beyond, I mean, into middle age, even then yeah. the pop culture, uh, has to shift to match what they will understand. And yeah. so I, I find the thing that I update most often are the references that, especially the referential jokes that are dependent on what we understand as a culture. And that means that certain things like, you know, early on, you could, uh, early on in my career, I could, you know, make a, a joke that was, you know, basically, oh, shit. And the laugh would be that, you know, someone had said something semi-inappropriate. Um, oh. But, but you know, it's now uh, the colloquial or the vernacular uh has more swearing in it in a day-to-day basis in public yeah. life. Yeah. Um, so that that shock isn't there anymore. Um, and it's not necessarily funny. It was just shock. Um, so I, I, I reevaluate, I, I look at characters, you know, um, as, as a cishet male uh, who grew up in the eighties, primarily my early plays were very strictly straight down the middle uh, of the road. These are the guys, these are the gals, and that's that. As I go on, um, I write plays that have more gender fluidity and more uh, non-required genders, if that makes sense. Um, Leave it completely open to the director. Um, So... uh, I change over the years, so my plays change over the years in the new form, and I need to go back and look at the old ones uh, and see if they need to be updated, too. As I grow, so does my art. I love that answer. I love that answer. What, uh, What do you find 
the challenges of train of of adapting a work of literature into a play to be because we've talked about uh, the translation a lot but are there any specific challenges that we haven't covered yeah i think the most important one is giving yourself permission to deviate um uh, stephen king in his uh, on writing states that uh one the the one thing that is true about writers is that they are people who have taught their minds to misbehave And what I mean by that is when I read something initially, I am tempted to stick very strictly to what that original creator did because I want to respect that. Mm. I want, I don't want to besmirch the work of someone else. Um, And I then have to give myself permission to say, but what if we do this and twist this? Um, I, I still find it's exceptionally important to stay true to the intent of the original. Um, but I want to let my mind misbehave and I have to give myself that permission to take a step back and go, let's just play with this for a bit. Yeah. Um, because then you get something new. Um, one of the things that I like about trans or uh, adapting, uh, specifically with, the Atalanta story is there isn't a single uh, original author. Uh-huh. Um, it came down through time, through many hands and very, many storytellers. And so I found it easier to play with that um, mm-hmm. because it wasn't like Dickens where I was sitting there struggling each time we changed something uh, emotionally trying to go, yes, but will this still be, you know, Dickens's intention? There are so many different intentions of all the various people who have told the Adelana tale for over the last few thousand years that Mm -hmm. I can't remain true to any one of them because I don't actually even know what they are. Um, (laughs) So I can take that framework and instantly be given permission to play around with it. That's beautiful. I am so grateful that you joined us today. I'm so I'm so honored that we get to work on this project with you. I think we're going to create something really beautiful and special together as a as a team. Yes. I love it. <laughs> uh, well, Chris, thank you so much. And uh, I look forward to seeing our audience on the 22nd at 3 p.m. Central Time, 4 p.m. Eastern. And what time is it over there in the Pacific time zone? That'll be one o'clock. (laughs) Wonderful. Uh, Please join us. Thank you for listening to the Seven City Podcast with Emily Cox and me, Joanna Moffat. Production by Elijah Lee of Big Orange Dot Design. You can find Seven City on all podcasting platforms. Follow Core Productions, K-O-R, on social media to find out more about our upcoming projects. Art is for everyone.